May 31, 1911. The second Olympic-class liner is finally complete after two years of construction. It'll be ready for its first voyage a year later. It's the most luxurious ship in the world. They call it Titanic. You just read the groundbreaking news in the Daily Herald and decide to treat yourself to a trip on this floating gem. You head over to the White Star Line's headquarters in London to buy yourself a ticket. You get the cheapest first-class fare for £30. That would be over $4,500 today. Wednesday, April 10th, 1912. The day is finally here. You must be in Southampton at 9.30 a.m. The third-class passengers board the ship first. Then the second and first classes follow an hour before the vessel sets sail. Stewards on board welcome everyone and show them to their cabins. Now it's your turn. The majestic ship in front of you is bigger than you imagined. As you board the Titanic, Captain Edward Smith himself greets you. Your trip will begin shortly. By the time the liner stops at Cheborg in Queenstown, over 2,200 passengers and crew will be on board, embarking on their transatlantic trip. The Titanic is ready to sail, and you hear the horns from the deck as you wave goodbye to the people below. But just a few minutes later, you hear panic rising on the deck. You run up to the railings to see what's going on. It's another ship coming too close. The sight of it says SS City of New York. Titanic has barely left the dock, but it looks like there's about to be a collision. The captain manages to steer clear of the other ship within just a few feet. Phew, that was close. The ship is scheduled to arrive in New York a week later on April 17th. But that's only if things go according to plan. The weather is clear until Sunday the 14th. As the vessel crosses a cold front, it encounters huge waves and strong winds. That night is quiet but cold. The Titanic starts getting warnings from other ships about drifting blocks of ice in the Grand Banks of Newfoundland. But this time, the great ship doesn't continue to travel at full speed. Instead, the captain slows her down. He wants to make sure the lookouts will have plenty of time to spot any icebergs along the way, even if it means arriving in New York behind schedule. It's 11.40 in the evening. Lookout Frederick Fleet spots a colossal iceberg right ahead. He immediately alerts the bridge. The first officer tells the steersman to go around the iceberg, and the rest of the crew members must stop the engines right away. Everyone on board is working together to avoid the obstacle. But in this story, the steersman doesn't panic. He immediately turns the wheel the right direction away from the iceberg. Many passengers have already been awoken by the commotion and jostling. Some go on the deck in their nightgowns and pajamas to see what's going on. A few peek over the right side of the ship to get a closer look. You and everyone else watch anxiously with white-knuckle grips on the railing. The stress and cold make you shiver. You can't help but wonder if the Titanic will collide with the iceberg. It's getting closer and closer. Onlookers hold their breath. It's so quiet you can hear a pin drop. And then, within a mere inch, the ship slowly sails by the ice monster. There was no contact, no gap ripped in the hull hundreds of feet long that would allow water to flood into the lower compartments. Everyone starts clapping and hugging each other. 
After doing all the necessary checks, the captain officially announces that everything is alright. He invites the passengers on the deck to come inside for a hot cup of tea before they go back to their cabins. You follow the group and see the captain leaving to go report the incident. He also alerts other ships in the North Atlantic to slow down and be on the lookout. Amongst those ships is the Carpathia. Nope, she continues on her course. No need to come to Titanic's rescue tonight. RMS Titanic finally reaches its destination on April 17, 1912. It's 8 hours late, but it's safe. Thousands of people come to the New York docks to admire the most luxurious ship in the world. It had a successful first voyage. Before getting off the ship, some passengers exchange addresses to write letters to each other. Like tennis players Richard Norris and Carl Baer. Both were on board the Titanic. But this time, Norris didn't spend hours in the cold water of the North Atlantic trying to help other passengers, almost losing his legs to hypothermia. And Bear was never on a lifeboat with his girlfriend, where he asked her to marry him. No, this time, he did it with friends and family around, and they all celebrated the engagement. The two tennis players end up playing their first match together later in 1912. Norris became one of the best players of his generation and won the Davis Cup five times. Margaret Brown was going back to the U.S. to see her sick grandchild. This time, she didn't have to help passengers get on lifeboats and never got on lifeboat six herself. When Brown gets off the ship, she runs to her grandson's side. This time, she never met the crew or the captain of the Carpathia to give them an honorary silver cup. She kept doing philanthropic work, but she never became known as the unsinkable Molly Brown. Violet Jessup never liked the idea of sailing in the North Atlantic because she knew how bad the weather could be. She was cautious, having just survived a crash a few months earlier. It was on the Titanic sister ship, the Olympic. But her friends convinced her to join the legendary ship's crew. This time, she was never called on deck to help passengers and never boarded lifeboat 16. She continued working on the Titanic until her retirement. Meaning, she was never taken on as a nurse of the Britannic. And in November 1915, it didn't become the third shipwreck Jessup would survive. Bandmaster Wallace Hartley went on the voyage to make new possible contacts for future work. But he kept playing to entertain passengers. This time, he never played music to a panicked crowd of people while the ship was sinking. He survives. He goes home to his fiancée, gets married, and starts a family. He continues entertaining people on the North Atlantic run. This time, his mourning fiancée never received his violin, and the historic Titanic memorabilia was never sold in 2013 for $1.7 million. Bertha Maine met the love of her life, Quig Baxter, in Brussels while he was traveling with his mother and sister. Baxter wanted to take Maine with him, so he secretly booked her a cabin under the name Mrs. de Villiers. This time, he never had to guide his family to a lifeboat. His family met his girlfriend when they got off the ship, not on lifeboat 6. This time, Baxter survived. He returned to Canada with his girlfriend, and she never went back to Europe alone. Maine's nephew would never find a shoebox in her closet with memories from the Titanic. Dorothy Gibson was playing bridge that night with a couple of New York bankers. 
when she went back to her stateroom with her mother, she never heard that long, sickening crunch and never got on Lifeboat 7. And in May 1912, she doesn't star in a movie about surviving the Titanic because there was no crash to survive. She went on to do great things, and she eventually moved to France with her mom. In this hypothetical story, the Titanic went on to have a successful career. It was the most luxurious ship for many years to come. It did the North Atlantic run countless times, and it successfully delivered passengers and mail where they needed to go. After 25 years in service, the old liner was scrapped. Another large vessel replaced it. It had more room for lifeboats and a large enough deck for people to walk and play. The White Star Line Company would eventually merge with their competitors. But this time, because their ships didn't sink, they made enough profit to continue going strong. In 1980, the company would become a major airline. Their first trip was from Dublin to New York. The plane was nicknamed Titanic in honor of the airline's historic ship. And this time, in 1985, the only thing oceanographers find at the bottom of the North Atlantic is corals, fish, and mollusks. And a rather large blue diamond necklace. Hold on. Nah, just some broken blue glass. Never mind. April 12th, in the year 2212. It's a great date for humanity. The 300th anniversary of the launch of the legendary Titanic. The best engineers of the world have collaborated for years to bring their masterpiece to the public. The Space Tanic. And they've done it just in time. The glorious spaceship is waiting in its harbor under the limelight, photographed by thousands of people. The trip was scheduled for April 12th just like 300 years ago. Finally, the big day has come. The passengers are going on board the most magnificent spaceship of the time. They call it unbreachable. It has 12 decks, from the third class closer to the bottom, to the most luxurious first class on the top, with panoramic views of outer space. The ship is preparing for launch. The engines are starting, the final countdown has begun, and the space tannic is off into the sky. It quickly becomes no more than a speck in the big blue and then disappears. The first day of the flight goes perfectly. The ship leaves the Earth's atmosphere in less than an hour, and passengers enjoy the wonderful view outside. The blue and green planet on the backdrop of the black void of space. The ship slows down a bit as it moves into orbit. There are too many satellites and space debris circling around the Earth. The space tannic has to go carefully and maneuver around the chunks of metal floating in zero-g. One of them heads straight towards the ship, but it turns on the side burners and moves out of the way just in time. The scrap floats by safely. Finally, the ship is out of the danger zone and into the big black. It turns on the back thrusters to accelerate and heads to the bright side of the moon. It's going to be the first destination of the sightseeing tour. The planet becomes gradually smaller behind, and about halfway to the natural satellite, people on board can marvel at the sight of the sun. The huge ball of burning plasma is bigger and brighter than ever in the cosmic darkness. Suddenly, the ship's captain makes an announcement. 
all passengers are invited to the promenade decks to watch as the solar panels are being unfolded. People go outside to goggle at the site. The silver and black panels slowly emerge from their containment slots, and the space tannic finally takes its real form. As the sun's energy begins to flow into the ship, the thrust engines turn to minimum. The spaceship is now in energy-collecting mode. For the trip to Mars to take just a few days, it needs to make a transit jump. In another five hours, another announcement rings across the board. The ship is approaching the moon, and the passengers are invited to look at the satellite from up close. The space tannic passes by at several thousand miles, and the moon looks huge. All the craters on the satellite, even the smallest ones, are clearly visible. The view is outstanding. The moon is left behind, and lights on the ship go dim. There's no natural change of day and night in space, so the crew monitors the time and imitates the shift. The next day promises nothing of interest, as there's going to be a long traverse between the moon and Mars. The passengers are wandering off to their cabins to sleep. The next two days go uneventful. On the decks, there are numerous types of entertainment for guests. From gyms and swimming pools to game rooms and dancing halls. People wander around the promenade decks, enjoying the serene views of space. Nothing bodes trouble. On the fourth day, the captain finally announces that the space tannic is preparing for the transit jump in 30 minutes. When the time comes, the passengers only feel a slight tug as the huge vessel leaps through space-time, entering the vicinity of Mars. Many passengers go outside to look at the red planet, which is already visible in the dark abyss. The tour is entering its final stage, but the landing is only planned for late night. At 11 p.m., when most passengers were already in their beds, the space tannic begins the final maneuvers. It has to make a little roundabout trip over Mars because the port is on the other side of the planet. The flight is nearing its end, only a couple of hours left before landing. The ship is in the orbit on the far side of Mars. Everything's quiet. Too quiet. All of a sudden, an enormous boom thrashes the whole space tannic, throwing sleeping people out of their beds. Blinking emergency lights turn on. Everyone's confused, but no announcement comes from the captain. And only those who have been on the starboard side promenade deck notice the horrible detail. The right front wing has been torn off and is zooming past them towards the stern. Pressing their faces to the glass, straining to look at the hull, they see a huge gash near the nose of the ship. The space tannic shudders again, and chunks of metal fly out of the gaping hole. The ship rapidly loses pressurization. Meanwhile, the broken-off wing hit the stern and left another gash in it. Mechanisms in the engine compartment start to fall apart and are dragged into space. The ship groans and comes to a halt, suspended thousands of miles above Mars. At last, the captain announces through the intercom that the space tannic has unexpectedly collided with a rogue asteroid. All passengers are asked to proceed to their respective decks for evacuation. Within an hour, all rescue capsules are occupied and ready to be deployed. 
but about a third of the passengers are still on board the ship. It turns out many of the capsules were blown away at the collision. History seems to repeat itself. The captain still orders to deploy the capsules, and they whoosh out of containment tanks, leaving hundreds of people behind. Some left without their family members, not knowing what fate awaits them. The capsules float in space for a few seconds, and then turn on their thrust engines, heading to the Martian surface. Another order from the captain. Everyone is to go down to their cabins and put on pressurized suits stored under their beds. As the passengers rush to comply, the space tannic sends distress signals to Mars and everyone in the vicinity. A hundred thousand miles away, a large trade ship, Leona, picks up the signal and hurries to help. The creaks and groans on board the space tannic become more and more frantic. People are sitting silently in their cabins. It's quiet on board, except for the sounds of the slowly disintegrating ship. And then, suddenly, a loud snap resonates throughout the space tannic, and the vessel cracks in two. A gigantic fracture goes from top to bottom, almost perfectly halfway across the decks. Pressurized glass covering the promenade decks shatter into millions of pieces, slowly flying away from the ship. With the decks depressurized, people and things are blown away into outer space. Thankfully, all of the passengers and crew are wearing their suits as ordered, but they only have about an hour before they run out of oxygen. People help each other by floating together and hauling stranded ones to their groups. They can barely control their floating, but somehow they still manage to bring some order to the chaos. Huddled together in orbit above the ominously red planet, they watch as the mighty space tannic turns into a heaping pile of space debris. 45 minutes have passed. The oxygen is running low, and people try to breathe as slowly and carefully as they can. There's still no help in sight, and they're preparing for the worst. But then, one of them starts waving and pointing somewhere. It's a bright spot, hardly different from the stars in far space. But it's getting closer by the second. And within five minutes, the relieved people see a spaceship speeding towards them. The Leonas arrive just in time to save the day. Quickly, but without hurry, Leona's crew gather everyone floating in space around the remains of the space tannic and haul them on board their ship. In a few hours, the Leona safely lands at Mars' main spaceport. The newspapers called it the day when the Titanic sank again. <laughs>